Shut up and sit down. Is but did you know polluted. that our water is highly, highly polluted? Eight million tons of plastic heading towards the ocean every single year. This is everybody's problem. We need to move faster and we need to move further because the leaders can then become the activists. Okay, with the planet calls, how can we turn this around? How can we find solutions? Join the Planet Calls weekly podcast sessions where co-founders Leslie and Amor discuss topical issues around sustainability and how we can rebuild a more sustainable world. Our guest today is someone we've had on the show before and someone we hope will be our regular guest. Welcome Dr. Leon Strauss from George in South Africa. Thank you. Lovely to be back with you again. Um, we're two, two, 16 days into lockdown, so it's uh, lovely to make contact with someone out there. <laughs> As a quick introduction, Dr. Strauss runs a clinical and integrative homeopathic practice addressing illness for the whole family. Now, he offers natural treatment options for acute and chronic medical conditions with a special interest in mood disorders, such as anxiety and depression, also learning disabilities, allergy, autoimmunity, and chronic recurring infections. Now, we were thrilled to have him as a guest on our very first uh, podcast show. So we're so, so happy that he's back in the studio with us again today. Leon, today we want to talk to you about vaccines. On our first show with you, we discussed natural ways in which we can boost our immune systems during the COVID pandemic. But today we want to talk about vaccines. You have quite a refreshing view on vaccinations. Can you share your personal views with us? Yes, certainly. It's uh, such a hot topic in, in practice. I think any complementary and alternative healthcare practitioner is, is asked the question more often than your general practitioner whether they should vaccinate or not. <clears throat> and it's, 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 if someone gives you a truthful, clear answer and says definitely yes, definitely no, they're not answering correctly, I feel. Um, it, all the factors need to be taken in account with the patient and the vaccination given and so forth. And with, with us living in the age of fake news and um, information that's not often traced back to its origin, to its source, we're more, um, more an echo chamber for anti-vaccination movements than anything else, although that view is changing within the profession. Um, especially in the naturopathic side. I read an article this morning that um, more naturopaths are embracing the fact that some vaccinations are necessary, as opposed to the 1980s, where it was absolute no-no. Um, personally, I feel there's a place for everything. Um, and, and certainly with some of the vaccinations like measles, you can see we haven't eradicated it with the surge that happens down again. And the deaths are up annually, it's up to 140,000, I think, in 2018, where it was slowly declining for 20 years. And the best because of some isolated outbreaks, because vaccines weren't um, completed. So there is a benefit, and I'm, I, I, I completely see that, although I'm not completely pro either. So I stand right on the fence, and I look at my patient, and I look at their risk factors, and whether it will benefit them for where they are to, to make that decision. So, so, Leon, I understand that you decided to vaccinate your own children. Why did you decide to vaccinate them and how did you space out their vaccinations? Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting story, quite a long one. My son particularly is four and a half years old now. He was born 
about four weeks premature. It was a, a, an emergency seizure. So we, we had to make all these decisions. First child, I've been in practice almost 20 years. And um, I didn't have a clear answer on whether I should vaccinate or not my child. So the usual amount of research that everybody does from my perspective, and I couldn't find enough evidence to say absolutely not. I could find enough evidence to say tread very cautiously, wait and watch, delay. So we delayed vaccinations firstly to his actual birth date. So it wasn't given four weeks earlier than it should be. And we also delayed that a bit longer. And then we had an adverse reaction possibly to um, one of the combination vaccines. And we decided to split that vaccine up completely. And that, that was the, the DTIP. Um, but it was particularly the, the pertussis um, side that was known to cause this kind of reaction. And I was amazed at the level of support I got from the pediatricians and the a control center to monitor effects and help us split up the dose and they gave us a program that suited us better. Um, and also we prepared the ch children, I, I prepared the immune system. We didn't um, have the vaccines done, especially if they lie vaccines, if there were any indications of, of uh, uh, secondary an infection or allergy or they weren't looking well if there was a gut lining aberration we didn't do them um so so we did vaccinate and we've had no problems since that first adverse reaction my daughter is absolute dream of everything she doesn't get sick she's very robust and strong but my personal experience this is my personal experience it it, it was a good route to take although i didn't get all the vaccines i needed the mandatory ones um and I understand that there is a certain percentage of people there that are out there that have a adverse reaction. That's not disputed by me in any way. That happens in medicine all the time. So you need to weigh out if the risk is bigger than the possible adverse outcome. And everyone needs to do that individually. Parents need to be involved in the decision with a healthcare practitioner. So encouraging to hear that you had so much support around the whole vaccination around your your son and for me it's, it's so difficult to know what the truth is about vaccinations especially with all the conspiracy theories that are going around these days back in the day there was concern that mercury levels in vaccinations were harmful and experts are now saying that the newer vaccinations don't contain mercury what is your opinion leon um, if we knew for certain mercury was the cause of the adverse reactions, that would be fine. We could close that door, but there's a lot of uncertainty about that. Um, mercury has been removed from the MMR vaccine since 2001, although it is still included in the influenza vaccine. I, I don't believe it's every year, but every few years it is included as a preservative. Um, However, the picture is a lot broader and more complicated than that, why there is this negativity and anti-vaccination movement. It's not just about mercury. It's, it's about the, the other um, excipients in the product itself, how it's delivered, the intrusive manner in which <laughs> these children are getting injected, a live vaccine or attenuated vaccine, a dead, dead vaccine, and that it goes against the core of natural healing principles. And um, mercury was one thing that got targeted heavily, and since it's been debunked, it's as if the entire anti-vaccination movement should be debunked. And that's not right either. There should be an anti-vaccination movement. There should be people questioning and investigating and looking for holes. 
that it should be as scientifically solid as possible. Right, absolutely. And the anti-vax movement is huge. And I find mm. people tend to be in one or the other camp. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I very seldom come across people who sit on the fence when it comes to vaccination. They're either for it or they're against it. Mm. Um, and there's always a, a lot of heated discussions around this topic. Uh, for example, I recently spoke to somebody who's very anti-vaccination and he was saying uh, that he feels very abused by the pro-vaxxers whenever they have conversations <laughs> yeah, because absolutely. when he's sharing his views on why he thinks the anti-vaccination movement uh, is a valid movement uh, he gets very aggressive responses from the pro-vaxxers so like leslie says it's it's really difficult to know what the truth is um and i but i also do think that uh, minds are opening up and people are taking into account that some vaccinations do offer some kind of protection um, and perhaps we shouldn't be so black and white in our thinking uh, regarding vaccinations. Perhaps we should, like you say, uh, explore the options and look at the science and then um, also take the patient into account uh, and, and approach it from a more holistic um, uh, perspective. Mm. Now, Leon, we recently you shared an article with me about how the BCG vaccination in South Africa could possibly be offering protection against COVID-19 and that countries who did not offer this vaccination to newborns saw a higher fatality rate, such as Spain, Italy, the UK and the USA. Can you elaborate a little bit on this particular speculation on the BCG vaccination? It's, it's, it's been a fascinating development of information and availability of this information. We live in an age where we have access to everything we need to, to make decisions ourselves. And just to, to reiterate that point you made earlier, we have an informed world out there with access to this knowledge. So this, this information is one of those really good news stories that I, I really hope is going to be true. Although on the outset, I'm going to say the original article isn't or hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. And um, there are already some of the, the logical flaws in the way that researchers analyzed and they haven't taken into account factors for the countries that, that are very important. But I'm hoping this is good news. But there's also an interesting development in Iran, or the numbers in Iran showing that the vaccination was not as effective for the elderly because they only started the vaccination protocol in the early 1980s. So the elderly population hadn't been vaccinated and they're seeing this increased death rate in that elderly group, not younger than them. The TB vaccine is known to offer what they call off-target benefits. They give you a broad protection for upper respiratory um, bacteria and viruses. And we are about 90% covered in South Africa in terms of the BCG vaccination, and it's still still being done, obviously. Imperial College, something else I came across that was quite interesting, Imperial College in London, already in 2012, published some research that there were more benefits um, from the BCG vaccine than expected. 
So it's it's very interesting, and I'm monitoring this closely. There's already two trials occurring. I think it's the Netherlands and Australia with health workers um, to see if there is actually a, a, a positive prevention and earlier recovery rate in patients vaccinated by BCG. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I'm watching it closely for obvious interests, for obvious reasons. Oh, one more point. Before, under the age of 35 years old is where this vaccination actually does work. Over 35 year olds, it's essentially too late to get an adequate immune response to give you this protection. And the vaccination holds for over 20 years. And I've come across information with patients that 50 years, they still got the, the 50 years after they had the last vaccination, they still have active antibodies towards the mycobacterium, the TB bacillus. Leon, that is extremely promising. I mean, you know, having been born in South Africa, we obviously have had all our all of these vac vaccinations. Now, mm. my mm. you you sort of answered my question, but I just want to dive a little bit into typically what happens to the body when you've received a, a vaccination, but also you've touched on that it lasts for 20 years. So I'm 40 odd years old. I had my TB vaccination when I was a baby. Does that mean that I am not protected um, as I sit here? Um, at least 20 years. At, at, at least, least 20 years. So um, does your body build up uh, an immunity and continue to keep that immunity as you live? Yes, yes. Like different it, it depends on the virus, firstly, and the, the, the type of vaccine you use. Your live vaccines, which is the polio, measles, and a couple of others, um, get your names in a moment. But the live vaccines tend to give a much longer, harder effect, where your immune system responds aggressively to this live vaccine and generates a cellular um, mediated immunity with white blood cells that are very specifically little assassins for TB. They, they groomed and they trained and they perfected to kill TB cells. So when you're exposed, you don't get them again. So they give you this cowpox, the cowpox, this bovine um, TB, and you get an adequate response. Your cellular immunity picks it up, you attack it, you destroy it at a much lower rate than you would have if you actually got TB. And with less damage, collateral damage. But you still develop these targeted assassins. And you can keep them anywhere from five to 10 years, as the case with tetanus, I think 10 years, up to 20 years. And with TB, I said earlier, it's reports of people over 50 years, they still show positive antibodies towards TB. You can have yourself tested. There is a skin patch test, um, which you can request when things calm down in the medical world um, to see if your immunity is still active to TB. That is very, very interesting. I had no idea that the uh, BCG gives you um, immunity or protection for such a long period of time. So that's definitely uh, an interesting fact. Leon, what would your advice be to parents of a newborn who are not sure if they should vaccinate or not? Um, you know, we, we recently discussed the whole controversy around vaccination and, you know, people being so unsure. So if you have just had a baby and you don't know whether you should or shouldn't vaccinate, what would your advice be? Um, I've had to deal with this many times in my practice and um, patients do come to me as a first line to ask me my opinion, expecting me to be completely anti and offer them 
um, homeopathic vaccination granules or pillules, which have never been proven to work at all, but they're still offered by a lot of homeopaths in the world. I won't do that. <laughs> what I will do is tell them what I feel their risks are, um, what the benefits are, give them a bit of advice on how they can prepare the body. Um, I like vitamin C. I love vitamin C, but particularly quercetin here, on one of the bioflavonoids, and omega-3, um, and a low-dose vitamin D3, age-appropriate low-dose, to build them up for that. It, it is an assault on their immune system. Um, but this assault, they estimate that with the vaccine of 10 different antigens in it, it only uses up 0.1% of your cellular mediated immune response, that very specific viral killer response. So I prepare the body, I look at the patient, I discuss the options, look at their risk factor, look at their genetic history, see if there is something that's coming through the family that's been going through the line, and prepare them adequately. And uh, as I said earlier, if uh, if you go to an alternative health practitioner, complementary, and they have an absolutely clear yes or no answer, I would question that practitioner's um, true motivation. You've raised a, an interesting point that I've never considered is preparing the body for a vaccination, as you say, you know, taking the supplements to prepare for that. So that's a really interesting mm -hmm. point. We've seen that vaccinations have eradicated things like smallpox, but why are people getting annual flu shots but still getting the flu? Is that because there are so many strains of flu going around each year? Um, yes, exactly that. Uh, flu virus is a broad term for a group of RNA and DNA structures that adapt very quickly to the, the environment. You know, you, at the act, active phase of a flu infection hitting your body, when you feel that muscular fatigue and exhaustion, there's up to 100 trillion DNA particles floating around your body. Now, if we look at evolutionary concepts, they do apply to viruses. They evolve, they change, they adapt. If you look at a virus like herpes simplex 1, the cold sore virus that up to 60% of people get periodically on their lip, that virus has mutated. It has found new places to live, tissues that it prefers living on or finds as an alternative. And one of them is the inner ear, the cochlear structure in the inner ear. So there's been a lot more vestibulocochlear neuronitis cases in this country, particularly implicated is that virus. So viruses do mutate, 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 and they mutate rapidly. We should actually be doing two rounds of different vaccines per year when it comes to flu. But this is one of those vaccinations that I think we need to be strong enough to cope with the flu virus. And if you're not in a compromised group, I don't think you should get it every year. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how many people get it this year, but what I do know already is we don't have enough flu shots for everybody every year in this country. So I think the same may happen with coronavirus. We're going to have a seasonal coronavirus shot that will eventually be developed, and it will mutate as rapidly as flu from what I've seen. So it's the mutation. You have to change the vaccine so the body has a cellular-mediated response, particularly to that strain of flu, Whereas something like chickenpox, it doesn't mutate much. It, it goes chronic in the body. It's, it's in, in nerve roots and waits until you one day feel like getting shingles. But it doesn't mutate and change like flu does. So chickenpox you get once, or you can look at the vaccine, but again, not one eye support hugely, um, unless really needed. 
Hmm. That's very, very interesting. Um, the other thing that I also wanted to mention uh, was I just uh, read some things um, in an article or two in the last few days, uh, particularly about the coronavirus vaccine. And they're talking about needing to have uh, some kind of certificate with you when you travel so that you can prove that you've had the vaccination. They're looking at this for, for longer term. Uh, once obviously a vaccination is found. Do you think that uh, this is going to be something that will imp be implemented worldwide or do you think that this is just purely speculation at this point? Well, that, that is interesting and it, it's going to set off a lot of alarm bells ringing in the conspiracy theory um, world out there. It's, it's just what they're waiting for to take the fear further. Um, I don't think ethically it's right that people have to display their illness status to anyone. It should be personal, it should be with your, your personal healthcare practitioner. And if we look at the last pandemic we've all survived through and not, not perished away as at one stage we expected we would, was HIV. Now HIV and your HIV status is highly confidential. And it's protected and i think the same should apply to coronavirus so we'll see what happens with that but that is very interesting um, but i think there'll be a lot of opposition to it. yes indeed leon it seems like we have run out of time thank you so much for joining our show uh, we'll share your website address um, with the pod podcast so that folks can contact you if they want to book some consultations and um, thank you so much for giving up your time and for sharing your expert uh, opinion and we look forward to having you back on the show again in the very near future thank you leon Great. lovely chatting to you and thanks for all your advice that you offer yes thank you thank you have a lovely day further you too